We have had just a wonderful day so far. Our numbers seem to be uh, coming back up a little bit. That's that's good to, to see. We had enjoyed just a great period of fellowship today. The, the picnic cookout thingamajig uh, was great. As Gary mentioned, it was great because we didn't have to cook. Uh, all the food was provided. Uh, but we tried to count. Of course, we were moving around. But somewhere 60, 65 or so were there. It was a wonderful time. We just enjoyed that period. Appreciate those who... Uh, put that together and uh, just enjoyed that so much. Just a wonderful day and and uh, good weather outside. And it's just wonderful to have a day with, with God's people worshiping Him. There was a study done very recently by uh, sociology professors at the State University of New York in Albany. And it dealt with the passing of language from one generation to the next among immigrants. And there's been similar studies before, but you know, from time to time they try to restudy these things and make sure all the research is correct, if things have changed, and, and, and all of that. And that study that was done, just to, really the study was released just a few months ago, their findings were that on average, by the time the language, the native language, the mother tongue, if you will, was lost or nearly lost, was only by the third generation. That's all it took. Basically, the grandchildren might have known a few words, be able to speak at home some, but that was about it. They didn't really know any, and they studied across the lines of a lot of immigrants. In other words, it wasn't just one country, one, uh, one speech pattern, one, one language, it was all across the board. The third generation. And I'm sure that there will be a sense of, of some level of loss uh, for grandparents or great-grandparents, they see a couple of generations down the road just barely able to speak a native tongue. You know, language just means so much to us. It conveys culture. It, can, it conveys heritage and a lot of other things. But as important as language is, and it is, there is something that is even far more important as we seek to instill things in our children, our grandchildren, and just future generations. And that is a trust and a knowledge of the Word of God. I want you to turn your Bibles tonight to the 127th Psalm. And while you're turning there, let me remind you of something that was said much earlier in the Old Testament. Because there are passages like this sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, but just to remind you of one, near the beginning of the book of Judges, you have a statement that there arose a generation after them, that is the generation of, of Joseph, of Joseph, of Joshua, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There's something about passing along the faith, passing along the knowledge of God to future generations that must continue to happen. But sometimes it just doesn't. There is no way that we can speak enough about the importance of making sure that parents, grandparents, and any of us who are adults are striving to reach the next generation with the truth. It starts with parents, but it's really for all of us. I want to read to you a paragraph written by someone who is actually a commentator who is writing on a passage nowhere near the psalm. He's writing about somewhere else in the Old Testament, but he wrote something that I put in, in one of my files on my computer computer just on a, a parenting thing. I want to make sure I use this at some point. 
But I want you to listen to what he says about the importance of this in the home. He said, the storytelling of what God has done starts at home, where fathers and mothers have a duty to instruct their children in scriptural truth. Children should learn Bible stories not only at church and perhaps also at school, but especially at home. Any father not personally engaged in the spiritual instruction of his children is not doing his duty. Fathers and mothers who teach their children biblical theology are handing down a priceless treasure. By telling them the story that will shape their lives, they are passing on the legacy of salvation. I think that author has it exactly right. It starts in the home. And tonight's lesson is, is more for parents, but it's really for all of us. Because even if your children are grown and gone, if you're not married, if you're married and don't have children yet, or will not have children, hopefully you still have an influence over young people. And hopefully, you still have an interest in those of us who are parents striving to raise children. And hopefully, you pray for us, and hopefully you seek to help us. And our lesson tonight is called Two Parenting Poems. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time in that inspired poem that we know is the 127th Psalm. We'll read it in just a moment. And then we'll spend just a few moments at the end on an uninspired poem that I also hope encourages us to think about these things seriously. Let's read Psalm 127 together, and then we'll look at it in just a moment. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There are a lot of ways to study and to outline that poem. I fully understand that. In fact, we can make multiplied points. But I want to study this poem tonight for our, for our first concept under just two concepts. The foundation and the fruit. First of all, think about the foundation. Solomon, as you may see in the, the note above the poem, the superscription, he's the author of the poem. And he begins with the principle that is true across the board. And that basically is that if God does not have a hand in something, it is bound ultimately to fail. It may last for a while. It may last for a long while. But the effort ultimately is in vain because God is not behind it. By the way, I find it of interest that Solomon wrote this poem because if you notice the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2, you have the word vain, verse 1. You have the word vain, verse 2. You have the word vain again, verse 2. And who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Where you have vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It seems if Solomon really liked that word, or at least that concept. And here he is saying that if we try to do something, Without God behind it, it is bound ultimately to fail. And that foundation depends on God, and Solomon ties that to a couple of concepts, the first of which is trust. The opening words of verse 1, that picture of trusting God, specifically in our homes, we must build our homes with God's help or we are working in vain. Now, we may have money, we may have a large house, all sorts of things, and we, try, we can try to build on those things, but those things ultimately won't matter and they won't last. 
And how often do we get frustrated with, with financial matters? How often do we get frustrated with just crazy schedules or any number of things? And that's part of life. That's going to happen sometimes. But the real question is, on what is our home built? And before you answer that question, think about your own life and think about the life of your family. How would you describe your family? What kind of picture of your family do you present to the world? If you were to scroll back through your Facebook feed, your Instagram feed, if you were to look at your, your checking account, those types of things really say where our priorities are in a lot of ways. Because if all the world ever sees and all we ever seem to spend our money and time on is, is ball games and band concerts and vacations and academic awards, there's our answer. Now, those things are not wrong. They're fine. They're good in a lot of ways. We enjoy them. We need to make sure we have those good, enjoyable things in life. But they can also become the priority and the foundation in our home if we're not careful. But Solomon also takes that concept of a foundation further by speaking of, of God watching over the city. There's a trust factor there. Because we often think, in our culture, we have to take care of everything. But if we are not trusting God to watch over us, we are going to run in vain. And you put those concepts together, you have a foundation, you also basically have a roof. And it's a temptation in our homes sometimes. We want to watch over everything ourselves, and we sometimes begin to cut God out of the picture. Now, our homes need protecting. That's very true. But sometimes when you hear a statement like that, our first thought goes to some type of physical protection. We think of making sure our locks are changed sometimes, or we add an alarm system, or maybe we talk about gun control issues, or we get spot the dog and he just barks everybody like crazy or whatever. But we think about something to, to protect us from, from the world around us. But our homes need something far more than just physical protection. Our homes need spiritual protection. And what is sad is that's what we often leave the most unprotected. How often do we allow the world not to just walk through our front door? We would never do that. But we allow the world to creep in through what we see on television, YouTube, and other videos. We allow our children to see all kinds of ungodly worldviews on Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat. We excuse missing worship for any number of things because we want our children to be well-rounded and when we do that, we're leaving them spiritually unprotected. Yes, God will watch over us, but we need to trust that we are partnering with Him and not going against what He demands and what He deserves. And so Solomon ties this foundation to a trust in God, but he also ties this foundation to a work while we trust God. Verse 2 of the poem, where he talks about, it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. He's not writing about avoiding work. What he was writing about is how much stock we so often put into that. We just work and we work and we work and we work thinking we can solve everything ourselves. And of course, there's a time to work hard. There's a time to work extra hours. Those things come. Sometimes I look at our family schedule and think we've lost our minds. That's some of the things we're trying to do. But too many people tend to think that just by working constantly and earning more and doing all those things, all of their problems are going to be solved. Notice that phrase in verse 2, that this is the eating the bread of anxious toil. Is that not the way our world so often works? That we work so much we actually get worried about it. Instead, we need to trust God. I love that phrase, that God gives His beloved sleep. 
I'm going to tell on your preacher. Years ago, I preached a sermon on that verse, and I had studied, I'd read it. Twelve things you read something, and and from from then on, it's just what's there. I, I read it and reread it and reread it, but I read it wrong the first time, and I preached a whole point of the sermon about how God gives to His beloved sheep. That's just not what Solomon said. What he said was, he gives to his beloved sleep. And some people think that must be the greatest verse in the Bible. But you think about what he's saying, is the work is a gift from God, and the rest from work is also a gift from God. At some point, we need to realize, tying this back to our homes, that our children need us more than they need money. Our children need to see us working, yes, showing them that good work ethic and doing things, but also taking time away and spending time with God and spending time as a family far more than they need just a larger paycheck. The foundation of it all is God. And the question becomes, do I really trust Him? Solomon's earthly father, David, said, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. Psalm 37 and verse 25. And at some point, we have to trust God and be content with what we have. There's a lot of reasons for that, but one is very simple. And that is if we're constantly running the rat race just to earn more and more and more, we simply cannot be taking the time to teach our children about God. Instead, we're teaching them just to be busy, just to be busy, and rely on ourselves and not rely on God. Oftentimes, when we do that, we're teaching them to be discontent because we don't think we have enough or the best or the newest or the coolest. And often, we're teaching them to be anxious because we have to take care of everything instead of realizing that the foundation of it all is trusting God. The Lord must build the house, and the Lord will watch over the house if we'll allow that to be the foundation. But in the second part of the poem, Solomon also writes about the fruit. The remainder of the poem deals with, with the blessing of having children. And it, it's a contrast, really, with a lot of pockets of our society. You, you hear people talk about having children, and you see things on the internet about children, and sometimes people are kidding, but really the, they're not all that funny. The jokes aren't all that funny. Children in our society have become a burden. They're a chore. For some people, they're a tax break. And let's just call it like it is, in the womb, oftentimes they're expendable. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Instead, Solomon said, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. God gives children as a special blessing. And we must see every child as just that. But since they are from the Lord, does that not also place the emphasis on us as parents to make certain that we're raising them in a way that honors Him and shows that they really are His heritage to us? He doesn't give us children and then not care how we raise them. The Lord cares deeply about how we steward these absolutely infinite blessings that He's given to us. And verse 4 is one of the most powerful word pictures of parenting in all the Bible. Describing children as those arrows in the hands of a warrior. There's a lot that's been said, written about that picture. And whole books and articles and books and all sorts of things. But there's a lot of things that are just implied beautifully in that picture. You could add the list. But let me give you four things that are implied by, by it. One is simply that they're near. They're near. 
you, you don't have a quiver of arrows and leave it at home and then go out to fight the battle. They're near. That, that warrior has those arrows with him when he goes out to fight. Our children need to be near us. We don't need to always be finding excuses to keep our children far away all the time. Yes, we need time alone. Yes, couples need time alone. But families need to spend time together as well. It also implies that they are to be aimed. A lot of parents in our culture, and if I may say so, even a lot of parents who are Christians are shooting at the wrong target. Or they're not really aiming at all. Sometimes we aim our kids primarily toward academic success or towards a great and high-paying career, or toward athletic accolades. And those things are fine to a point. But if we claim to be Christian parents, we should have one target in mind, and that is faithfulness to God. That should be it. That should be what we are aiming at 100% of the time. And all the other things will fall into place. They may never have the highest paying job. They may never make the greatest grades. They may be the worst athlete in the school. But if they're going to heaven, we've aimed them the right way. That picture also implies that at some point they must be released. At some point that arrow has to be aimed towards the target, but we can't just aim and aim and aim and aim and aim. At some point we have to release. It's not easy to talk about, but that's what makes that warrior a warrior. He's willing to fight. And that's the final implication I want to mention above, above any others we could think about tonight, and that is that we are in a battle. The picture of uh, arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior make it clear that we're in a battle. Folks, it's as clear as day. Satan wants our children. Not, not just mine as parents. He wants all of our children. He wants the children who come into this building and who are involved in youth activities and who are involved in lives to leaders. He wants all of them. And if he can influence us, and specifically if he can influence parents, he's made sure that we're starting to aim them the wrong direction. Our resolve must be that we are in a fight and we are going to fight. And we're not going to give up. And with that, Solomon then writes that there is a reward, even on this earth, for being faithful and aiming our children. And that's there will not be shame when others are around, even our enemies. Verse 5. He talks about the gate, the enemies being at the gate. The gate was the place where business was done in those ancient cultures. Sometimes it was a place where judgments were rendered and all sorts of things were done. And Solomon was basically saying that the one who has done well raising children just won't really have to be worried about how he's received, even by his enemies. Now, they may not agree with him raising his children to love Jehovah God, but they still can say that's someone who loves his kids. That's someone who's trying to do what's right by his kids. And so the children are called the fruit. But raising them to the best of our ability also continues to produce fruit because we have a good standing with others. But all of it, all of it goes back to making sure that God is at the center of everything. Nothing else can take raising my children to the best of my ability to be faithful to Him from being my first priority in their lives. And let's be honest. Our children often know if we're doing that or not. They can see if I really am putting God first, they see if it really is first priority. Are we going to be perfect? Of course not. And our children can grow, and I know, I know what Proverbs 22, 6 says, but there are some who grow and decide they don't want this Christian life anymore. I, I get that. But our kids, when they're in our homes, they know if we're seeking to be consistent, if we're seeking to be faithful to what we say. That's 
the inspired poem. Before we get to the uninspired one, I want to tell you where it came from. It's not very old. In fact, it was written just within the last year, or at least published within just the last year. And some of you may have read it because it was published just in the last few months in the Gospel Advocate. But I want, but I want to tell you about where it came from because when I read it, I was just, I was touched. I don't usually contact the, the authors or the writers of those articles and things, but this poem hit me enough that I immediately just emailed the author who I'd met before, knew just a tiny bit, but not well, just, just to thank him. And to my delight, he got my phone number. I know the preacher where he worships. And instead of emailing me back, he called me to thank me for getting in touch with him. But he also said, would you like to know why I wrote this poem? And I said, sure. Here's the basic story. The congregation where he worships, just like here, when coronavirus hit, decided to go online only for quite some time. And when they decided to, to reopen and then reopen slowly and do things like just like we did here, they decided the time had come to restart Bible classes. As with a lot of other things, they were scrambling like a lot of places were because some of their regular teachers weren't returning to class or weren't returning to, to worship yet. And so this man, who is a medical doctor and a deacon at that local congregation, agreed to help teach some of the smallest children. I can't remember if he told me it was kindergarten and first grade or first and second grade. It's not usually where you see a man teaching in the Bible school program. And he admitted to me, this was not my comfort zone. But he welcomed the challenge. He was glad to meet the young children a little more, get to know them a little better. He told me that it would help him in his work as a deacon because part of his work there is he helps coordinate lads to leaders for that congregation. And so he was excited to get to know the kids. And as he taught, he realized something that most of us have learned about kids, and that is they basically would tell you whatever's on their mind all the time. They have no filter. And whatever question you ask, you're going to get the answer that's up here, whether it's been thought through or not. And so he began just before class or after class just to ask some things about, about their life. Where, where were you last week? I missed you. Oh, my sister had a ball game, and so we decided to stay home so she could be warming up for the ball game. He, he noticed that when he talked about that doing family Bible time or family devotionals as a family, that, that was a good thing. He, he said the kids didn't have any problem telling him. They, they didn't do that. They didn't think that was that important. We don't talk about the Bible at home. Or we watch this TV show together. But we, we don't talk about the Bible at home. And I don't remember his exact wording. But he told me that by the end of that stretch of time, teaching those precious little children, his heart was just aching for them. And he told me, he said, all of them come from what we would consider good homes. Their, their parents were members of that congregation. They were respected in a lot of ways. But there was something missing. They weren't getting their primary training in spiritual matters. But the parents were letting all sorts of other things come first. And as he reflected on that, he composed a poem that I've edited not for content, but just for time. It's very, very lengthy. And he called it, Who Will Wait? His name is Dr. Matt Guy. And this is what he wrote. I remember us going to worship, said Johnny when asked. But worshiping God is a thing of my past. Remember in third grade, the time finally came when my baseball league scheduled a Wednesday night game. I'll admit I was shocked when you said I could play. My team had no chance if I was away. You sat in the stands and cheered on my talents and show me what mattered in my Christian sports balance. You wished the league had not chosen that date, 
But they tested commitments, and you took the bait. You skipped out on our brethren and told God he could wait. That night stuck with me too, Sue then begun. And for the life of me, I can't remember who won. Our family intended to meet with the saints to sing praises to God without any restraints. But one Sunday night, our exhaustion ran deep from the prior night's movie which robbed us of sleep. What was the picture? I can't recall. But I remember that evening you threw God a curveball. You told us He knows we don't always feel great and worship can often go so late. So you kept us at home and told the Lord He could wait. And remember that Sunday your friends gave a ring to meet up that morning for brunch in the spring? They didn't do church and would not understand if we skipped out on them to keep God's command. So we gossiped and laughed as we ate what enticed while our brothers took emblems of the body of Christ. Not once did you mention the lost sinner's fate, how you longed to meet them at the heavenly gate. It wasn't just the moment. You told God he could wait. Home family devotionals were never for us. God's love and salvation were hardly discussed. My Bible awards could not hold a candle to the volleyball trophies adorning our mantle. I complained that Bible Bowl was not entertaining, and it just wasn't cool to have leadership training. So I was stunned, Mom and Dad, when you let me stay home and I watched you enjoy the extra time on your phone. With Facebook and TikTok, there wasn't the time to teach us of song leading and speech in our prime. That's the preacher's job anyway. It's his hill to climb. We learned it from you guys, an inherited snub. So we've no interest in your personal Christ country club. It's okay for some people who've got nothing to do, but not for our athletic popular crew. We will skip church for sports, for movies and meals, for societal interests and remarkable deals. You fooled them, Mom and Dad, the times we were there. Your doors were well painted, but your cupboards were bare. We heard your lip service, but your actions rang loud. Your priorities lay with the secular crowd. And worldly success is what made you most proud. That movie escapes me and the score of the game, as we mourn their conditions for which we share some of the blame. The church came in second, just as they said. When something came up, we did that instead. We sure didn't realize each justification was destroying commitment in our next generation. The church was our hobby. It never took root. Our devotion to God was hung up with my suit. The kids were not fooled. They saw it straight. Our actions too often told God he could wait. And now for their souls, we both fear it's too late. So we beg you, dear parents, don't share in our sorrow. What you do today is what they'll do tomorrow. Satan's best weapon is a schedule that bends for technology, ball games, and non-Christian friends. Tell your friends they can wait. Tell your coach you have plans to worship our Savior, not sit in the stands. Embrace godly training. Teach Bible at home. You'll raise Christian giants. With the seeds you have sown. Will they join you at church? Or have too much on their plate? It all depends now on the tone you create. When it comes time for worship, who will you tell to wait? Can you tell it means a little bit to me? We have wonderful parents. We have wonderful families. And I know sometimes preaching on this, maybe 
pulls scabs, pull wounds. I get that. It's hard to preach on parenting, especially when you're right in the middle of it. But we can never give up. We can't give up. And God must come first. Every single time. Every single time. Who will we tell to wait? We have great young people. And part of that's because they have good parents. But as one who's trying to do this, and fails pretty often, I don't know if my kids will be spiritual giants. I don't know about that. But if they're faithful, that's enough. That's enough. And so we're never giving up. The only way I know to transition from that to extend the Lord's invitation is to take that phrase and to remind all of us, parent, not a parent, children grown and gone, whatever your situation is, that it is always about making sure God is first. Even if I don't have kids, where is my first priority? Does God always win? Do I push Him to the back burner just because something else comes up? Just because something else happens to be there? I need to make sure my soul is right. If I'm ever going to lead anyone, not just my children, but anyone else, into a life of faithfulness. Do you need to come to Him tonight? Do you need to return to Him tonight? Whatever you need is, will you come? Voice and sing to encourage you.